Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome back to the OSINT Bunker podcast. Uh, I am the Defence Geek and I'm joined by my co-hosts uh, OSINT Technical and Austin. And we're also joined this evening by a variety of guests from the OSINT community. No, so, so, so we are we are joined by uh, Spook. Hi guys, it's me, Spook. Um, who I believe has been with us once before. We've also got All Sources News. Um, I think you've been with us twice. Uh, we've got Global Military Info and, of course, the other John uh, from Ideology Wars. Hello. And considering the amount of chaos that was going on in this channel about five minutes ago, they've all suddenly gone rather quiet, which is uh, worrying. Uh, but the this is right. Yeah, I kind of scared everyone off by telling them to make it easy for me to edit. You can, you can <laughs> still talk. I mean, come on. <laughs> this, this is Season 5, Episode 12 of the OSINT Bunker Podcast. Um, it is our season finale our last episode of 2023, and also the last episode of this format uh, for the podcast. Um, for those not aware, in 2024, um, we are going to be uh, splitting the podcast into two separate uh, sort of shows. Uh, one will be sort of the, the, the traditional format to a, a, an extent where we will have a long episode speaking to a specific guest around a, a specific topic. And then, of course, we will also be having our snapshots podcast um which will be a weekly or fortnightly uh episode just going over recent news events and so without further ado i suggest we should uh, get into the topics for tonight honestly you know what we're going to start it off roundtable discussion on uh the uh yemen situation or or more specifically the red sea because that's kind of where everything's focused right now okay let's start with something funny here and let's talk about houthi propaganda uh because the houthis have been putting out you know mostly videos like the occasional poster i don't know maybe they're dropping leaflets on cargo ships at this point uh however what they've been showing has been like sort of your traditional you know this is something we would expect from iran you have your parades you have stuff like that but the one video I'd like to talk about that <clears throat> we mentioned pre I've mentioned previously in private discussion has been the singular Yemeni F5 set to danger zone sort of <laughs> as a as a threat to US naval operations. And I want to just uh, I want to make two notes here. Number 1, obviously a single F5 is going to do nothing against an air wing of F18s, let alone a single destroyer. But the fact that they used Top Gun music from the movie where F5 slash quote unquote MiG 28s were just domed by F14 is hilarious. And I think that signifies the continuing American culture victory over the rest of the world. Oh, absolutely. Using using what is objectively American propaganda in your own propaganda directed back at America is just kind of beautifully poetic in a way. Um, but but truly really does show how kind of like culturally present America is around the world. Um, and I think that's something a lot of us forget about on like a day-to-day -day basis is everyone is so heavily exposed to American culture um, in, in just a way that, that we aren't really exposed to others' cultures as much as as, as really they are to us. Um, but it, so it is remarkable. Oh, sorry. I, 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 I do believe, though, I think we need to make a little distinction, though, when we're talking about propaganda. Right. And, and I think that video was directed towards the United States in, in the sense that when you look at, you know, our adversaries, both state actor and non-state actors, they'll have propaganda geared towards 
either the local or regional population. And then they'll have others that are geared towards the United States and the West. And, and I think this Houthi propaganda, I, I think what the, so the Houthis want international recognition. They, 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 thri- they want to make their resistance movement accepted and the ideology they have accepted internationally. And then I think the, the, the them doing that specifically I think was a way to reel in American conversation about the Houthi movement. So let's be frank, for the vast majority of Americans still to this day, is not a very well-known group. Mm-hmm. And But utilizing Top Gun and the ridicule that that will it, it obviously incur by the American people gathers conversations about them. And no longer are you talking about, and you can even look recently at, at, at Houthi statements, right? Like uh, when they, they release, they say the, you know, the Houthi armed forces to the point now when people report on them, uh, uh, and maybe especially accounts that are not probably uh, uh, the most reliable, they, don't, they, they just tweet Yemeni armed forces interchangeable with the Houthis when there's a clear distinction between both. But I think that's what the Houthis want and what they're trying to attempt to just garner that international legitimacy and become more recognized as an important actor in the Red Sea and in the Middle East. No, absolutely. And this this really has been a chance for them to, to take on that mantle of, you know, both both the resistance movement and sort of in a bit of a wider way, um, developing that name brand recognition, basically. Um, where where they are becoming synonymous with Yemen, even though you know the Yemeni government still exists, it's you know it's it splits territory effectively with the Houthis inside the populated part of Yemen, um, and and the the Houthis are able to sort of position themselves as hey you know we are Yemen we control the 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 Bab al Mandeb Strait we 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 are we're the ones in power here. I would certainly agree to the point where <clears throat> kind of what all source was leaning into, we are seeing like accounts that normally, you know, aren't doing their due diligence, but have wide reach on social media platforms claiming that these are statements coming from the Yemeni government, not recognizing and for all everybody listening, you know, the Houthis are not the Yemeni government. They're a rebel group. They have been for quite some time. But the fact that they're being sort of touted as the Yemeni government at face value kind of shows their objective of, you know, establishing legitimacy and sort of establishing themselves as the voice for the entire country, when the reality couldn't be further from it. No, I, I, absolutely. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Excuse me. Um, no, but um, I, I, I definitely do think that, yeah, there, there is a bit of that, that what you had talked about, where it's the, the fact-checking element of it that, that isn't exactly pursued as much, especially on social media. Um but the Houthis, you know, I mean, they, they don't mind if, if they're they're called the, the, you know, the government of Yemen or the armed forces of Yemen. Um, but I think, you know, we'll, we'll probably continue to see that go into the future, especially as the corner of Twitter that likes taking up the mantle of these groups continues to do so. Entirely. And and now I think that kind of leads us into a, a more general discussion on the situation with it in the Red Sea. And so Houthi propaganda aside for the moment, what does that actually mean for, you know, op- what is it? Operation Prosperity Guardian? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Okay. Not, not the first name I would have chose personally. I no. think typically we do a bit more badassery when it comes to naming operations. However, you know, it's literal. It makes sense. We're guarding prosperity. Um, 
I'm curious as to your guys' thoughts about the recent naval deployments that have been sort of announced versus what's already there. What is the People's Liberation Army Navy doing besides standing around and watching like they typically do? Um, you know, so on and so forth. So, so I think I think I think when we're talking about the Houthis, right? Like we we cannot, and I know we're we're going to focus on the Red Sea clearly, but 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 from a Houthi perspective, the the the, the Israel-Gaza war provided an opportunity for the Houthis to gain legitimacy, at least in the quote-unquote axis of resistance, right? And, and, and even more so in the Middle East. They, they leveraged that opportunity to pick up the mantle of the Palestinian cause because, let's be frank, the, like, the Arab governments, they might make public statements, but there's no real backer anymore of the Palestinian cause outside, you know, in the Arab world. Right. You would have to kind of go to, you know, you can look at Hezbollah as a way, but like as, as in, 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 but as a government institutions, it's really not very, you know, outside of public statements. There's really nothing else more to it from 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 Arab governments. And so the, the Houthis saw this as an opportunity to gain influence. And and targeting not because this started with targeting Israel and then the maritime corridor. And it goes back to that original, that, that my original point before when we were talking about propaganda is, it is an attempt to to make their names public in the international community. And, and I said this before, right? When you're looking at the attacks, obviously they are concerning. Obviously they cause problems, but like, let's put in perspective, 2009, 2010, 2011, at the height of the Somali piracy, right? A lot of ships, consistently were getting hijacked way more, and causing much more economic damage and chaos in the maritime world than what these attacks are doing. The, 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 and, and, and if you look at it from a pure dollar term, the, the difference, though, obviously, is, is, is the explosions, right? The visual effects, the reports, attacks, attacks, and explosions, and here's drones, here's an anti-ship ballistic missiles, because then that demonstrates, that enables the Houthis to demonstrate a capability to the international community so that they are also considered a legitimate military threat. And if you analyze this from the, the Saudi GCC intervention against the Yemeni Houthis a couple years ago, this shows that the Houthis have garnered this capabilities. And now, although obviously the U.S. Navy and the international community can kind of deal with this in a way, it still puts their name on the mark and the Houthis have no problems if the U.S. bombs them. Because then they can say, look, we're getting attacked for the Palestinian cause. Yeah, I, I will say, though, that the current actions that the Houthis are taking um, in their kinetic in their current kinetic effects are at a significantly higher rate than even the peak of Somali piracy. Um, they're, the, the attacks are far more frequent. They're, they're happening you know, multiple times a day. Um, affecting potentially multiple ships in, in a single attack. Um, they're coming from multiple vectors. And, and you know, as the, the Houthis are not necessarily a state enemy, um, but, but they do have, you know, significant capabilities um, to conduct those attacks, whether or not they be with ballistic missiles, drones, you know, small boats, um, or, or, or any sort of platform. Um, I, I, I think that... There definitely is that delta, and and the concern is real among among shipping companies, you know, who who have diverted and and have taken the significant um, financial hit to do so to to avoid the Red Sea. Um, 
because you know at the end of the day getting your ship getting your ship shot with a missile um is is a pretty bad effect yeah and that's where business risk kind of comes into this a bit um well i guess not a bit a lot uh is the idea that i was reading the other day that the average cost to ship around um the coast of south africa versus you know going through the suez is around 400 grand per ship um, and we're seeing sort of shipping companies do this in droves. So the fact that they're willing to sort of take that hit on the front as opposed to, you know, run the chance of a drone or a missile hitting their container ship kind of shows um, their angle on this. And, to, and the idea that large companies, things like Maersk, are going to continue sort of taking smaller but um, understandable and like predictable financial risks as opposed to exposing themselves to potential you know, missile drone attacks or small boats. Well, I, I don't think it's just that, but it's also the time. Um, the the most notable thing I can think of is IKEA has already talked about potential business impacts to supply chains, mm-hmm. um, and and they're they're already saying that that some you know products might actually you know be out of stock over the next month, um, as as it takes just more time to get around um, the the Horn of Africa and to to actually get or through the alternate routing. So I think that's also going to be another pretty big effect. And I think, I think also people need to realize like insurance premiums on these ships is probably through the roof and continuing to rise as these attacks become more prevalent. So at a certain point, a lot of these companies are, are going to have to be forced um, to switch to the African route as opposed to taking the risk even just from a, a general sense, because they just won't be able to um, be exposed like that if they were attacked. I can imagine the underwriters uh, at organizations like Lloyd's are certainly increasing premiums for any sort of ship, especially with the um, attack that just happened um, in the eastern Indian Ocean, or, or not the eastern Indian Ocean, but but very far east in the Indian Ocean. Um are, are potentially recalculating insurance rates for, for any ship operating pretty much all the way from basically right off the coast of Pakistan now to, 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 to Mali waters, um, which is just a huge swath of, of territory and, and an incredibly trafficked area of the ocean um, with, with a numerous products heading towards it, um, including oil, um, consumer goods, uh, pr- uh, various produced goods, um, and I, I feel like we'll we'll probably continue to see economic impacts from that. So I, th- I think I think the the you know because the, the insurance claim is very important and the kind of the cost of shipping, but I, I think we all acknowledge you know there's alternate routes you know there might be a price increase et cetera, but I think that the the main countries that are going to suffer severely because of this and it's already kind of come out I mean, obviously the port of Iliad in israel i think they said 85 percent drop in utilization of that port which even is not surprising even without the the the, the houthi attacks it just just with gaza they were probably going to suffer an impact but probably not as much because of the houthi involvement but also more importantly i mean egypt the Suez canal in egypt i mean egypt relies heavily uh, on a lot of that commerce and then ports along egypt and saudi arabia right in the red sea and so you know, there there is an international component in the international and global economy that is going to have an impact, but but I think the the, the bigger problem set and, and the bigger 
economic damage is more in those those regional countries, specifically along the Red Sea. And I mean, like another a perfect example, like the port of Sudan. I mean, I mean, Sudan is a country right now ravaged by civil war between the SAF and the RSF. And now you're going to have a situation where if shipping companies want to utilize the Red Sea to go to Sudan, and now you're jacking up all those insurance premiums, et cetera. And so those countries along the coast, this will have a much more significant problem, economically speaking, to those countries in the littoral of the Red Sea, comparatively to the, to, to the international community. And, and I think that will have second and third order effects. I mean, just look at the just you know the, the Sinai right now and the amount of instability because of the Israel-Gaza war. And, and this it just continues to add more and more problem sets. And, and it's, it's interesting that so far uh, I've not seen any international attempt outside of the military domain, just economic, purely economic. How do is there any plans in place to address this, to ensure that a lot of these economies and local economies that are dependent on the Red Sea to survive? I haven't seen anything to try to mitigate this, this that specific risk that the Houthis are presenting to those countries. Well, I mean, I'm I I believe the stated goal of Operation Prosperity Guardian is to ensure safe passage of vessels um, through the transit point through through the Bab Mendeb and 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 off the coast of Yemen and the Red Sea, um, and that 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 is currently one of the international responses. Um, at, at at the same time, you know, obviously, in, insurance prices are are very large, or not just insurance prices, but risk calculation. Um, in general, for a lot of these companies, is is you know it's very hard to placate those sometimes, um, and so we we may not see things return to normal for a while, especially if there's a stated goal um, to to continue um, what's currently ongoing. So on that note, I think we should we could we could do one of two things: we could either segue into the Israel Hamas conflict, or we could talk about what the logistics and the specifics of Operation Prosperity Guardian are likely to look like. Because as of right now, we understand essentially two U.S. destroyers have been, you know, pulling the majority of the weight in regards to these interceptions. Mm -hmm. Now that we have a, a carrier strike group <clears throat> off the coast of Yemen, um, the Eisenhower and its associated escorts sort of moving in, alongside, I believe, some British, some French vessels, and again, I will reiterate the Chinese vessels that seem to just be observing. Um, I'm curious as to your guys' opinions on what Prosperity Guardian will look like, how quickly this sort of objective can be put into place, and what do we look like moving forward? Well, I think we should also talk about the possibility of a strike from okay. the U.S. coalition as well, since you know, there has been more articles coming out from U.S. officials that the possibility is growing since mm -hmm. it's, you know, it keeps happening. There's no deterrence going on. But that's also something I think we should probably touch on since it's becoming more likely. But to go ahead and segue to that conversation, I think if a, if a strike does happen, it either needs to be very heavy where it cripples their initial efforts to do so again. Because I feel that if a strike does occur and it's not heavy enough, it's just going to invite more of an issue within the Red Sea. I'm not sure everyone kind of shares the same, but that's kind of my two thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll interject there and say uh, I really do think that this has become a bigger political issue than it has to be. Uh, probably because of its relationship to Israel and whatnot for the Biden administration um, and their foreign policy uh, own, if you will. Uh, I agree. If, if there's going to be a strike, it has to be a, a debilitating strike. Like, it just has to leave the Yemen, uh, 
not the Yemeni, the Houthis, in a position where they can't really do this anymore. And it also has to send a pretty strong message to Tehran as well, um, since I'm sure they have a pretty big hand in uh, the kickback from all of this right now. So, yeah, if there's going to be a strike, it has to be it has to be massive, in my opinion. Um, and and Biden kind of just has to swallow the potential uh, criticism that he's going to get from the youth voters. I, so, I, so I will I, say, anyone who remembers or has studied the problem of scud hunting knows how difficult it is hmm. uh, to identify you. hunt down and then destroy launch platforms like this this is not you... like conducting a strike against a state opponent it is it, it would be extremely complex yeah well, I also I... think go ahead go ahead go ahead no 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 please go ahead go well ahead. I'm thinking it also doesn't help that a lot of the regional players who decided to not be part of the uh, prosperity guardian kind of went public as well, which if they're not going to be full on with the strike, then that regional intelligence is going to be degraded, which is also not going to help with this scunt hunting, you know, metaphor. So. And it, it's I, worth saying that at the moment, in terms of actual strike capable assets in the Red Sea, it is more or less entirely the U S that has that capability. The French have a single frigate that has a land attack capability. And Does then... the Languedoc actually have land attack capability? Yeah, so she carries 16 of the um, Storm Shadow naval versions. Okay, gotcha. It did have um, the scalps. Yeah, so she carries 16 of that, and that's it. Other, other than the US carrier strike group and the US destroyers, that is it. Because the Royal Navy assets in the region are anti-submarine or anti-air warfare only they don't carry a land attack capability and the rest of the nato assets in the area i'm thinking uh, there's a spanish frigate there that we know of um, again air defense only um, so it's very much down to the u.s in that regard to carry out any such strikes at the moment now obviously if, if, if they were to plan something and uh, as technical says that, that that's not going to be easy because this isn't you know, hitting a fixed target. This is a case of that they're going to have to effectively scud hunt. Um, you'd you'd have to see air assets from other allies start being moved to the area, and I think it's worth saying that with with this uh, Operation Prosperity Guardian that we've seen so far, the vast majority of the nations who are supposedly involved are not actually supplying aircraft or ships to this effort. They are literally supplying. A handful of officers to assist in coordinating. So, so what I would say, I think, I think the, the, the any any significant strike that occurs, I mean, it, it, it does not necessarily have to be within the naval domain. I mean, the U.S. military has extensive military assets across the region. I mean, obviously, there's diplomatic issues, like you know, can can the U.S. launch a strike, let's say, from I don't know, so, you know, so, uh, uh, Qatar with air assets from Qatar and go to bomb the Houthis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So. But there are significant platforms, and I don't think it's necessarily a naval strike against the Houthis. There's a lot of assets there. Uh, but but two things. One, thank you, Technical, for saying that, because I was, that's exactly what I was to say. Scott hunting is very difficult. I was going to use that specific example. But but also, like, you know, there's an issue about calling, you know, you can degrade a capability, and then you can destroy a capability. And, and when you're talking about military, degrade is very wishy-washy. You, you know, you can hit one tank, destroy one tank out of 100, say, oh, well, I degraded them, you know. And, and so... 
it, it's I, I would be very cautious for people to say that we can destroy the Houthis' capabilities of threatening the Red Seas, right? I mean, the, the Houthis have proven themselves to be extremely resilient during the Yemeni civil war when the Saudi Arabia-led coalition bombed Yemen and the Houthis specifically ferociously. I mean, it was nonstop. And the Houthis still had a capability to launch ballistic missiles and drones against Saudi Arabia, even at the height of this current Yemeni civil war. And so I think we just have to have expectation management. And again, you could do a strike as a deterrence to send a message that, hey, don't do this again because, you know, we can get more committed and we can obviously do more. But this idea that the Houthis are just a, a, a fig leaf or a paper tiger can just kind of be pushed aside and destroyed. You know, I, they've proven themselves that they're not to be underestimated in that capability. Obviously, degradation can happen, but actually destroy is a, would require a significant amount of time, effort, and planning that maybe not be within the appetite of not only the United States administration, but even just the international community and the concern of now, okay, we're gonna have a subsequent bombing campaign against the, you know, the Yemeni Houthis, compounding the humanitarian crisis that Yemen has in addition to Israel-Palestine. And so that's why you kind of have to look at this holistically and see what is the best avenue. I'm not arguing in favor or against, but it's just not so clear cut. And then specifically with Operation Guarding Prosperity, I, I think the, the issue, and I've, and I said this before, is, is you know, we have to rely ourselves on public press statements of the mission intent and the mission statement, right? And that's just in the public domain based on the DOD's, you know, press statements. And, and it, but it's really hard to fully grasp and understand what that entails, right? We, and, and the information that would really enable us to have a better understanding obviously is not gonna be released publicly. Right. We're, we don't know the task organization. We don't know uh, uh, the command and control aspect and the mission command and how they're going to operate. We don't know their authorities. We, we, it's just, we simply don't know and we can speculate. But does the strike against, you know, the Houthis fall within the mission set of Operation Guardian Prosperity or is it something completely separate? And, and I can you can argue either or, but it's just hard to know unless you're a planner in the Pentagon. Uh, you're really not going to know, and it's pure speculation. Well, also in terms of a segue into the logistical aspect of the prosperity garden operation, I think one thing to take note, I think the most success would be escort operations in general, because I feel like if ships continue to be attacked, even with a naval presence in the region, mm. it's going to cause people more and more to divert do the longer route compared to using the shorter route as you know we all know about so i feel like the only way it could last is escorts comparable to the tanker wars back in the 80s but once again i don't know if the commitment is there especially since the regional allies are not really fully on board and most naval vessels are u.s so it's hard to actually fill the demand if not everyone's on board with the operation in general well, what's the what's the Carney up to thirty four to zero on drone interceptions? Correct. Yeah. yeah. So it's there. I just don't know in terms of if the attacks escalate, if the U.S. will continue to maintain that presence there, you know, without further support. And and and, and, and global, you bring up an excellent point. I mean, the 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 other issue and the problem that we're encountering, right, is I mean, there's a finite number of naval assets globally, 
mm. and, and all the problems that are that 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 are occurring around the world, right? You you cannot ignore. I know often uh, you kind of said, right? Indo-Paycom, yep. you know, it's, it's screaming like, "Hey, we matter." Ucom is screaming, "Hey, we matter," and it's it's always this issue that Sencom always drags everybody bus in. But you know, there there are other global uh, problem sets around the world that require U.S. attention. And, and how much capability do we have to spread out across the world uh, with the naval assets that we have available to try to plug every hole? Because we might prioritize the Red Sea, let's say, but then the Straits of Hormuz can become a problem set, right? We, we, we just don't know, you know how this can escalate. So if you attack the Houthis, if you attack the Iranian warships in the Red Sea, I mean, then obviously you're going to have to look at uh, uh, the Straits of Hormuz. And again, that just causes more and more problems, both logistically militarily, et cetera. I, I think no one wants escalation. That That is something the U.S. has been clear on for a while at this point. Hmm. Yeah, I think yep. you're right, because even if a strike happens, you have to look at the terms of heavy and deterrence. You can't really have a heavy strike and not be worried that a retaliation of some sort from Iran will occur, but you want to have a strike enough where you're deterring further escalation, which I think that's kind of why there is a current <clears throat> gamble with that ongoing between U.S. officials. I just feel like, unfortunately, it's damn if you do, damn if you don't situation based on how things are currently going. But I think it's important to note that the longer we're looking at these strikes on um, merchant vessels, the larger the political pressure to cease it will be. I understand that, you know, messaging-wise and generally, there isn't an appetite in the U.S. for escalation. But the longer this goes on, the more that appetite is going to grow, the more people are okay, going okay. to Okay, but, but the, yeah. the average American citizen both yeah. wants the attacks to stop, but yeah. the U.S. to also not get involved. Yeah. And, like, 18 other, you know, completely contradictory things. Like... It really is a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. No, no, no. I, I understand the paradox. I think eventually, though, without um, escalation in regards to uh, offensive operations meant to stop attacks on civilian vessels, I, I think eventually the appetite for intervention is going to win out. It's going to continue to grow. And eventually, I hope, there. I mean, it's going to go one of two ways. Either, you know, the conspiracy theorists went out and everyone's like, oh, my God, the U.S. is bullying the legitimate government of Yemen, which the Houthis are. Or uh, we see to a point where people are like, this is ridiculous. What it's doing to supply chains is ridiculous. The United States needs to do something beyond simply intercepting drones. Granted, I, I don't think we'll see a concrete supply chain effect on these things probably for the next month, to be honest. I mean, yeah, supply um, chain issues take time. And, you know, a month from now, who knows what the situation is actually going to look like? Um, is is there going to be a change? Is it going to be the same? Um, you know, will we have to deal with knock-on effects um, until it actually is resolved? Um, and I, I, I think that, that's, that, that, is, that is a big element of this. Um, and, you know, the, the, the average American's understanding of foreign policy and ramifications of actions are... Um, I'm searching for a diplomatic term for this. Um, Wanting. Yes, that's that's a good term. Um, and and that can cause some unintended consequences. 
for certain, which is why I think foreign policy in general in crisis scenarios like this is a bit of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Um, that being said, what I think is going through the heads of not just CENTCOM right now, but I guess the, the president's office is, is there more to gain by intervening further than there is to lose, both on the political front, on the economic front, and I guess on the military front, if you want to make it a, a triumvirate there. Um, so understanding the difficulties with scud hunting on the one end and understanding the risk of escalation, I, I think it's, it's safe to assume, number one, when we talk about escalation, I think generally when the term escalation has been thrown around in the context of the region and the context of the Israel-Hamas conflict, um, the idea has generally been like another force getting involved in that conflict directly. So whether it's Hezbollah rumbling over the blue line, whether it's Arad more directly supporting its sort of proxies in Iran or in Syria, or, you know, as as much as the um, the alarm button ringers were pressing in the early days, you know, Delta Force rolling through Gaza. Um, I think the idea of a either limited um, ground strikes against the Houthis doesn't fall into that traditional sort of model because I think the the risk and the idea and the fear of escalation uh, over the past couple of months since October has been that the the Israel Hamas conflict itself expands, um, and I wouldn't view sort of anti piracy or anti missile operations in the Red Sea as an expansion in that model because even if you know the coalition decides to start striking Houthi sites. It's not like Iran's going to war the next day. It's not like, you know, we've got another ground campaign in Iraq rearing up. Um, I, I do think that the Houthis do want to market anything that the U.S. does as directly connected to um, the, the, the conflict right now. Um, absolutely. Um, I, would, I would certainly agree that that's the Houthis' objective on a marketing perspective. That being said, the fact that we're seeing, you know— Hong Kong flagged vessels getting struck is a is a tough sort of counterweight for other nations that either are in direct support of Palestine or maybe on the fence for the conflict itself to sort of buy into. But but I think the escalation ladder is, you know, okay. So we, the U.S. conducts a response, right? And then so the, how do the Houthis? If the Houthis decide to respond, and I think again, there's a lot of things that are probably happening either either diplomatically or even clandestine that we, we just don't know. And so th that causes the speculation. But the, the, the escalation is not necessarily, per se, Israel and Gaza. But if we strike mar you know, maritime targets or you know, these, these anti-ship ballistic missile capabilities, et cetera, that the Houthis have, does the Houthis respond then by reinitiating what they've done in the past of conducting strikes in the, across Saudi Arabia, right, for example, or any places within the GCC? And, and now that then that does cause an expansion of the conflict in the sense that because then it determines on the Arab community in these, you know, the GCC countries and how do they respond. And I think there's a concern in that aspect that the Houthis might not just limit themselves if they get attacked to maritime targets. They now might use that as a justification to expand to Saudi Arabia. And, and, and that's the concern, I think. Which I would I would say that concern is very valid considering that they've been trying to either via missile, via drone, strike Riyadh or Aramco facilities on the coast for the last half a decade, right? 
Um, and so I do think that there is some hesitancy on the part of the Gulf states to prevent a campaign from like that from reoccurring. That being said, that campaign itself wasn't very damaging to the Gulf states and its infrastructure. Um, to this day, I don't think there's been a single, there's been attempted strikes, but there hasn't been a single, you know, damage report from the UAE. Um, the drone attacks on the Aramco facilities caused some damage, but I think, mm -hmm. you know, in the five years since, we've seen considerable amount of, you know, time, money, and effort being put into um, counter drone defense. And in, I want to say those Aramco attacks were done by like quadcopters. Um, so it wasn't a very sophisticated operation. And then when you look at sort of recent ballistic missile alerts over Riyadh, those got intercepted or they landed in the desert. Um, so when we, when we talk about, you know, the idea that, number one, we understand the Houthis have ballistic missiles. Uh, number two, they're not very effective at using them. Um, I mean, obviously, a ballistic missile anywhere poses a threat to, you know, any sort of civilian vessel or uh, aircraft operating in its vicinity. Uh, but if you look at sort of recent strike campaigns by the Houthis in Saudi, um, they haven't been well run. They haven't been wholeheartedly effective. And I think that's a major reason why we've seen Saudi support on the back end for Prosperity Guardian. But I do think, um, unless there's further further comments on Prosperity Guardian here, I think this is a, a good segue into the larger conflict still ongoing in Gaza and in the West Bank as well, as well as, you know, hit and miss day by day on the Israeli-Lebanon border. Hmm. So if we want to kick into that, I feel like this would be a good opportunity to do so. Yeah, I mean, we are how many days now into this conflict? I've actually lost track. Eight, 80-something days, is it? Uh, uh, I think from October that. 7th or from the initiation of the Israeli ground offensive? Uh, from October 7th, it's going to be... Uh, 77 days. There you go. Um, and it's fair to say that um, the, the, the international condemnation of Israel's response has been somewhat more audible than the condemnation of the initial terror attack that led to the response. Okay, <laughs> at personal risk to commenting on the policy surrounding this, um, I will say I do actually think that that's understandable, right? Um, obviously, October 7th was a horrific day, and the mass civilian death caused by the terror attacks is something that rightfully so brought large-scale international condemnation. I will say I think humanitarian issues in the political sphere continue to build upon themselves because whereas leaders voters representatives whatever um viewed the initial casualty counts on october 7th and were you know understandably taken aback by how terrible they were we are 77 days i believe uh gmi said um into daily reports of either civilian loss of life a worsening humanitarian situation on the ground in Gaza. We're looking at daily security operations in the West Bank. Um, and so I think the the global political opinion understandably has shifted in the face of 
you know, 76 to 77 straight days of just seeing civilian death and civilian suffering on top of, you know, the counterterror operations, um, on top of sort of the reports coming from the IDF. And so I, I can't really say that I'm shocked nor surprised that we're seeing a shifting of the stance of the global community as long as, you know, ground ops continue to go on. I think we're, we're looking at a world right now that is far more averse and far more cognizant of um, humanitarian issues, particularly in politically charged environments like the Israeli uh, Hamas slash Israel-Palestine conflict. Hmm. And I think we're seeing that sort of um, rear its head in regards to recent UN General Assembly votes. We're seeing that in changing political posture. And we're seeing that um, in the response to the breakdown of negotiations between Israeli and Hamas representatives in Qatar. I, I hate I hate throwing my hat into the ring on these ones, but I mm -hmm. I the one point I will make on this is that as has been for you know eighty years now, or sorry, more than eighty, or yeah, about about seventy, eighty years. Um, there is real true concern held in the international community and 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 by regular people by humans um about what is happening um and and there are real genuine issues and problems that are people are attempting to tackle and and really attempting to go after um i think we also do face an issue of people who are not actually invested in making the situation better um making it worse in order to score points hmm. um i i do believe that's an issue um i have seen a lot of very legitimate peace activists sort of push to the side especially over the past few months um and I think that that is a really big barrier right now um, to to actually having a, any sort of positive resolution. Um, I just I I it's really really hard right now um, to pursue these issues when there are so many people arguing in bad faith, um, and that that just makes that just makes things really difficult. But I think defense. You, you know, again, it's it's it's. This might be a little bit controversial, but I, but I think it's important to highlight something that you you just said there when you when we initiated this conversation. This year, twenty twenty three, there has not been there's been a plethora of gross human rights violations, even to the potential of genocide level violence. Right, Sudan, Azerbaijan, Ar Armenia are just two prime examples of. Thousands and thousands of people either killed, hundreds of thousands of people, if not more, being displaced, right, around the world mm. in violence either internal or between two different act state actors. And yet the focus, not only in the media, but throughout the international community, has been, for all intents and purposes, comparing it to Israel-Gaza, mute. But yeah. there is an issue that any time Israel initiates military operations, there is a 
focus and 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 criticism to Israel, unlike like again, let's just look at Armenia Azerbaijan, the hundreds of thousands of Armenians who were forcefully displaced after Azerbaijan's invasion. I'm not going to get into the politics of it. I'm not going to get into the history of it. That's not my comment. But it's an undisputable fact that that war this year caused hundreds of thousands of Armenians to flee. Yeah. Nothing. And almost no one focused on it. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. Nothing. And so then Israel, so let's be frank, was attacked in October 7th, has within its neighbors— surrounded and it's basically in this neighborhood for large parts of the West Bank, Gaza and Lebanon by non-state actors determined for the destruction of its own state. And there's an expectation <coughs> that Israel cannot respond to that in a way that sees fit to defend its own country. At the same time, that does not excuse violations of international humanitarian <laughs> law and the laws of war. I, I agree with you. Yeah. I 100% agree with that comment. I, I 100% agree with that comment. However, it's just, it's just, it, it, I, like, I understand the, the, the focus on it. I, I understand, but, but, but the issue is every time, and that's why we, you know, we all talk because we share information about global hotspots around the world. Myanmar, for example, gets no attention whatsoever, and there's gross human rights violation. Yeah. And so uh, the Myanmar is the next topic. Well, good. But it's really the only place we're going to talk about is in groups like this. Very few, very few outside of that are think tanks. But at the same time, it is it baffles me that countries and, and human rights organizations look at Israel and tell them you need to stop, rather than saying what way. Can we actually establish a secure Israel in the constructs of a two-state solution? Now, Benjamin Netanyahu is not the prime minister that's going to achieve a two-state resolution. Let's be real. It's not controversial, and he needs to go. And I think, you know, obviously that's an Israeli domestic political issue, and they need to handle it. But there should be conversations in the international community being like, Netanyahu, you know, you're kind of done. It's time to move on. We need a two-state solution. But the only fundamental way that a two-state solution can occur is if Hamas and Pidge are not there. And I'll end with this, is that there was a, there was a Twitter account and, and this one of these you know, amazing spaces, quote unquote, in, in Twitter. And it's from uh, an Egyptian. It was an Egyptian Twitter account. He was on this space. And, and, and um, we, I think some of us might have interacted with him. And, and he made the comment, and he was kind of talking because the Palestinians were kind of criticizing kind of the Egyptian stance. And what he said was, wait up, you can't criticize Egypt in the aspect because we fought two wars against the Israelis, well, technically three, causing tens of thousands of deaths, if not more, within the Egyptian population, absolutely ravaged their country. They lost the Sinai for decades, hmm. and they found a way to sign a peace treaty with Israel and have friendly relations. And I think that needs to be the push. If, if Egypt— with Anwar Sadat was able to sign a peace treaty with Israel, which back then seemed insane to state that, there should be no reason why with absolute push and acknowledging that there's certain actors, both within Israel and Palestine, who do not want a two-state solution. If there's going to be so much international focus on Israel solely because of what they are and what they do, fine. But then actually push for a two-state solution 
with a legitimate Palestinian authority recognized as an international state, no more non-state actors. And that also needs to be included after that also has to include Hezbollah. There should be no world where Hezbollah has the amount of weapons it has undermining the Lebanese, Lebanese uh, state and government. Yeah. And it, it's worth saying, and I think kind of draws back to where I started with this, this the conversation, that the UN sort of human rights council or, or whatever they call themselves now is full of these nations like you mentioned myanmar russia north korea the 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 nations renowned for human rights abuses and the un general assembly obviously as a part of being the general assembly features a lot of these nations that are human rights abusing nations and it's interesting to note that in the last 12 months, of all of the resolutions that the UN has written in regards to individual nations and human rights abuses, they have written one against North Korea, none against Venezuela, one against Myanmar, two against Russia, but 14 against Israel. And in none of those statements have they mentioned what Hamas has been doing in Gaza all of these years. And, and I think another point, outside of just the General Assembly, because, you know, those kind of the nations getting together, just look at the, the UN as an agency of itself. What was it? Yesterday they released a tweet saying, I think it was like 600 and, what was it, either 65,000 or 650,000, I can't remember the exact, I think it was 65,000 Lebanese were displaced from southern Lebanon because of the fighting. And then the people put in the community notes that the actual amount of Israelis displaced from the northern Israeli border is greater than what the Lebanese were displaced. And yet the UN has not once acknowledged, tweeted, done absolutely anything to highlight how this war is also impacting Israeli civilians who have been are now internal refugees, internally displaced, and are also living in a time of fear where they can't go into their own community. I'll step in here as well and talk more about the uh, uh... NGO side of things, stuff like Human Rights Watch, and I'm going to burn a lot of bridges here uh, <laughs> if anyone ever listens to this, but I, I despise Human Rights Watch. They're such a selective organization when it comes to this kind of stuff, and it's not just Israel. I mean, uh, I, I, just, I brought it up in conversation when I was talking with them once about their stance on Cuba. Um... They're very selective with how they target human rights violations, and Israel is just a huge highlight, but they also overlook a lot of stuff in places like Myanmar and Cuba and Venezuela. Um, but yeah, no, uh, it's it's a tough situation, and it, exactly, if the world's going to be focusing on it so much, then instead of criticizing, actually start getting together and talking about solutions and pressing for them. It's happened in the past. Egypt as highlighted earlier it's not impossible so at this point you know i'm all for as horrible as the operation is right now uh, hamas needs to be out of the picture and that's pretty much what is happening at this point hmm. but there does need to be a concise plan at the end of the road because yeah there, there is there going to be an end of the road been, like what what does the future look like um, you know, what, what are the future plans? Um, where, where do we go from here? I, I, again, as I said, the main 
problem is that reasonable individuals have been pushed to the side. Um, People willing to work together towards peace have been marginalized um, on both sides, and that has caused innumerable issues. Um, And I, I, I think that that is something that the international community is most likely going to have to look at is, is how to bring back a level of reasonability to the situation. And, and because that's, that's the only way you will ever achieve peace in this situation. Um, you know, the, the real politic there kind of intersects with, you know, what is actually needed. You know, it's, it, it is, it, it, it's effectively no longer isolating out those who wish to actually form a peaceful resolution. Um, and I'm not sure what the pathway for that is. Um, I, 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 I do not know. I mean, the Israeli government has been uh, very vague on their plans once this starts wrapping up. And I do think it's going to start wrapping up. Hamas has disintegrated at a honestly faster rate than I ever thought they would. So, yeah. What are the Israelis going to do? Are they going to occupy the Gaza yeah, Strip, or are they just going to pull out and I, I what, think leave a power vacuum? I think truthfully, Benjamin Netanyahu doesn't know what the plan is, and I think that's something that we're, we're well aware Joe Biden has raised with him on a number of occasions. And ultimately, this is the opportunity for the UN to turn around and say, right, okay. Let's actually deal with this. Israel pushes Hamas out, pushes them into the sea, whatever you want to call it, gets rid of that terrorist influence, and then the UN steps in and does something with Gaza, turns it into, as you say, a Palestinian state, creates the two-state solution. I think the issue we've got is, A, Israel doesn't really know what it's going to do at the end of it all, and at the moment... You know, fair to say that this this conflict's going to be going on for a few more months. They are by no means, you know, anywhere near finishing off Hamas. That Hamas still there. It's just the command structure is gone, as you say. They have disintegrated to you know more or less an extent. They're still firing rockets into Israel, and that's ultimately Israel is no, going to have to continue pushing through until they have eliminated that threat. But I think. The issue is the UN is also equally unprepared for dealing with Gaza post Hamas, and I, think I actually disagree. I just I, I I don't know how you keep Hamas from popping up without an occupation, and I don't know how the Israelis managed to pull off an occupation of the Gaza Strip. Um, those two just don't really intersect well together. Um, where we're effectively, if you want to keep Hamas away, you have to have a massive investment of manpower, resources. Um, you have to basically rebuild the Gaza Strip immediately. Hmm. Um, or, or you just decide to pull out and leave a shattered Gaza Strip and I, Hamas I, comes back. I don't think it should be the Israelis occupying and holding and rebuilding the Gaza Strip. I think that should, given the UN's repeated calls for ceasefires and repeated calls for humanitarian aid, turn around and let the UN do it. 
at the end of the day, the UN's force in southern Lebanon that was there to prevent further issues between Israel and Hezbollah have been rather useless, I think it's fair to say. In well, at the same time, have... we don't know what things would look like without them there. No, and I, I'm not suggesting for a moment that they'd be removed, but perhaps it's time that that UN force is expanded and that their scope is then increased to include the entirety of Gaza. I will say this. I do think the United Nations has infrastructure uh, in terms of organizational logistics to handle this. Uh, UNRWA is a phenomenal organization when it comes to Palestine. Uh, They've gotten a bad rap recently because, like pretty much every organization in Gaza, they were infiltrated by Hamas. Um... I think the potential to reorganize UNRWA into a larger Palestinian management organization is definitely possible. The political and bureaucratic infrastructure exists for it in the United Nations. And yeah, I think all these countries that are whining about Israel uh, should maybe step up the, mm. the, and invest. At, in, 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 at minimum, put a monetary investment into the reconstruction and at temporary political management of the strip until so, a longer solution can be established. So I guess I'll be the voice that maybe that, that kind of says, and, and maybe this is a, project, uh, a prediction. Uh, I know we were going to do that later, but I, I don't think the UN is going to play a role. I, I, I think, I think the, the, the thought process might be, and there's a possibility they do, but I think the thought process is let's use the multinational force observers in the Sinai as an example. The MFO is a non-UN peacekeeping mission. They wear orange berets to establish the peace treaty between Israel and Egypt. And, and I think Israel legitimately says, we don't trust the UN. We don't. And I can't blame them. I really can because I am waiting for any comment from the, the, the UN that at least has elevates the concerns of Israelis' national security and domestic security. And they haven't. And I do believe that a, a venue is the MFO where, in the sense, and it doesn't have to necessarily be peacekeepers, there can be some ways or, or more than just peacekeepers. But I think the only true way this is going to happen is a concerted effort by the United States, the European Union, and possibly the Arab League in some way, shape, or form, or at least member states of the Arab League, specifically, maybe those with the Abram Accords, Saudi Arabia, etc., taking a role in establishing you know, a, a, a new government within Gaza, ideally within, uh, within the Palestinian Authority, or at least a plan to incorporate it within the Palestinian Authority. And like I said, the, once that end state is also established, you know, the, Benjamin Netanyahu has to go. And, and the, my concern is, is that Benjamin Netanyahu knows he's in trouble politically. He is deeply unpopular. He ran as being Mr. Security, and it failed resoundingly. He mm. failed as a leader. He failed as a prime minister. Benjamin Netanyahu has a vested interest in the continuation of this war and to make sure that peace, a peace agreement or a ceasefire is not established, even when Israelis' objectives have been met. And again, I, I, I think this is where 
the U.S. administration, because they've been very vocal in their support to Israel, with some with some legitimate criticism as well, as needed to be done because of the um, disproportionate amount of Palestinian civilians who have been killed. But I think this is where the Biden administration really needs to push Benjamin Netanyahu forcefully once the constructs of, uh, of a ceasefire can be established and a plan can be established to enable a new government authority within Gaza, to tell and threaten Benjamin Netanyahu, you will not hijack this, you will not sabotage this. And I just think that we, we, we do need to highlight, though, that Benjamin Netanyahu's political interest is the continuation of this war. Yeah, uh, I agree there. And I will vouch for his unpopularity. Uh, I have a lot of family friends that are Jewish and have ended up immigrating to Israel. And the general consensus, I would say among the more influential voters there, so anyone under 30, is that uh, he needs to go. Hmm. And this this war is basically the only thing keeping him around at this point. <laughs> I mean, like, let's like, let's be real. If it wasn't for October seventh, the, the main conversation of twenty twenty three related to Israel were the protests. Yeah. For the Anton Benjamin Netanyahu protest because of his trying to attempt to reform the judiciary to have more, to ensure that his corruption cases don't continue, and to and can solidify the right wing direction of Israel's domestic politics. That was his intent all along. And, and, and there were massive protests. October 7th obviously shifted everything, but people haven't forgotten. And, and, and I think what, when we talk about <clears throat> Israel and Palestine, I always find it interesting that people, and it's a, it's a legitimate concern, right, that you know, Israel's actions of attempting to destroy Hamas can create future generations of more violent terrorists, right, in, in the way and how you operate. And, and that's 100% a legitimate talking point, a legitimate perspective and analysis when we're doing coin or, or, or trying to eliminate terrorist organization. But what, pe what, what, I, what, what I would counter with that, too, is like that goes both ways. In other words, the inability to maintain security of Israel as a state in of itself will demand more and more and more right-wing members of the government. Benjamin Netanyahu is not the most right-wing member of his cabinet, not even by a long shot. And so if you do not take into consideration Israel's legitimate desire for national security, you're going to then force and push Israelis to vote for more and more hardline members to be in power, who a lot of them are open about the annexation of all Palestinian territories, who have would have no problem with mass displacement of Palestinians in the West Bank or Gaza, who mm -hmm. openly advocate for that. And again, it's, it's, a, it's a tight rope you have to walk when we're talking about radicalization, but it's not only related to the Palestinians, it can also happen in Israel as well. Yeah, I, I mean, the situation is messy. Messy is an understatement. I was, at the end of the day, this is, you know, you, you have people who don't want the conflict to end. And those people are on both sides of the conflict. Um, and that is to the detriment of everyone um at at the same time i i think that the international you know it would be great if we could see international you know a level of what is frankly um international involvement in setting up a process for peace and i i don't think anyone has the will to do that right now 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I frankly don't think that anyone has the will to invest both the manpower, the material, and the capital um, to, to actually resolve this situation in a favorable manner for everyone. Um, I, I truly think we are, we are limited right now in, in what we can see. And I think that forces us into a situation where the status quo resumes. You, you effectively get 20,000 plus deaths for, you know, everyone starting back at square one, you know, maybe Hamas is, uh, there's, there's a level to which they've, they've been degraded, but, but as we said, degrading capabilities doesn't mean anything at the end of the day. Um, and that would be sort of the most or, or one of the worst results um, in that a number of civilians died in order to get nothing. Um, and I, I just I, I don't know we see a resolution to this without that international involvement. Um, and I, I also I, I just I don't see countries willing to step up. I don't see countries, you know, announcing Hey, we're going to be directly involved in a process for peace. We are we're willing to put up and, and actually get involved. Um, and yeah, I, I just I, I really don't see that involvement. I, 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 I think the the unfortunate situation we're running into globally, well, not maybe not globally, at least in the West, is that there is this nationalist trend that is picking up steam. And I think this highlights the problem set with that kind of that political philosophy that the world is is chaos, is chaotic. And the, the problems that we run into with an isolationist foreign policy is we might actually have that encourage further instability internationally, which then ironically will probably reinforce more people to be isolationist because they say, we do not get involved. And But the problem is always, at what point does that tip into there is no other choice but then to get involvement? Um, but but uh, you know, even having said that, though, I, I would like to, to, to highlight, I think, something that, that's important, and I said this before, uh, is that even today, though, when we're analyzing kind of the global security situation, right? I, I can make an argument that the 90s were far worse in terms of global conflicts and casualties, right? I mean, the, the, the most violent war to happen post-World War II was the Congo Wars in the 90s and early 2000s. I think the casualties were eight to nine million people died. Right? To this day, it's still the most violent conflict since World War II. Um, the Rwanda genocide, the breakup of Yugoslavia, you know, the Transnistria, Abkhazia, South Ossetia, the Iran-Iraq war, well, the, the, the Gulf War, I'm sorry, the Gulf War of 91, right? I just think that the problem we're running into, and even you can even look at Israel-Palestine, I mean, the first intifada is a perfect example of it. But I think that the, the, the issue now that is different now compared to 10, 20, 30, or even maybe even five years ago, even, is the the access that people now have to information from war zones, which were non-existent 10, 20, 30 years ago, right? I mean, Twitter, social media has has allowed people now to see war when they want, as they see fit, 
rather than relying, as it was in the past, traditional news organizations. And it's not, I'm not criticizing how we access information in the past or news organizations at all, but now it's extremely easy or easier to access information. And, and, and that access to information is, is actually why we're all here speaking mm. and we have a Twitter account. It, because we are able to leverage and we know how to leverage messaging apps, social media, we're able then to tailor our accounts to inform people of situations that are going on the, on the ground. I mean, just imagine if the, the Congo War, instead of happening, what now, over 20 years ago, imagine if that were to happen now. Imagine the Rwanda genocide. If that were to happen now with the access of cell phones. Hmm. And I, I, I think I, objectively yeah. that's a good thing. More people should know that war sucks. War, war is not fun. War is not a team sport. War is something that objectively sucks. Um, and I'll, and, I'll it, and it doesn't allow it. pressure if, if you have an engaged populace that is involved in this. And I'm, again, I, I understand people that, that, that protest against Israel's military actions. I, I'm, I don't disagree with them. I don't want people to misconstrue what I'm saying. And, 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 and you know, you're exercising your First Amendment right, absolutely. And, and we should hold Israel accountable for how they're conducting this war and ensure that we try to minimize casualties. But but to your point, Ozan Technic, and, and, that, and this information flow we have enables that. But I think what people forget is exactly what you said right there. Like, war is hell. Like, this idea that you're not going to have civilian casualties or you can fire a, a drone missile into one specific room, you know, the, the RX-9 blades in a Hellfire missile... Uh, oh, just just launch special forces, and and that's how you can do it. It's like that's not warfare. That's 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 that is a Hollywood construct of how mm. warfare is supposed to be. And in an era where we hope that humanitarianism and, and and international law and justice are equal, and and unfortunately, I think both Russia, Ukraine, and Israel, Gaza demonstrate that is not how war is, and war is not changing, and it is hell. And I'm glad you're finally acknowledging and seeing this because it's a because it's it's terrible. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a reason why international frameworks are objectively good. It, it's because they prevent things like this from happening. Successful international frameworks that prevent conflict are just objectively a good thing. Um, and I, I think we see pushback against that by people who don't really realize what those frameworks provide. I mean, yeah, I agree with that. I agree with a lot that has been said. Um, I'll name a couple specifics really quickly. But I do actually want to hark back on a point that um, Ideology Wars John said previously, and that's the fact that the UN RWA is doing a lot of good work. Um, they continue to do a lot of good work, and sadly, I believe they've had 93 of their personnel die in this conflict so far while executing their duties. So as much yeah, as, they're, you know, they're under an immense amount of pressure right now. Immense amount of pressure. And so, well, I think it's it's important that we sort of look at, you know, we can make fun of the UN all we want on the grand scheme of things based upon their inability to, you know, execute on directives for, like, very tentious conflicts like this due to the, uh, the um, apparatus of the Security Council and how it operates. Um, not going to get into that debate right now. But it should be important to note that there are, have been and there remain, you know, UN volunteers in its um, 
various organs that have and continue to do good work. Um, continue to sort of put themselves at immense risk and sometimes end up, you know, paying the ultimate price doing so. Um, so a quick little note on the UN there. But in regards to international frameworks and why they're so important, I think it's important as like a case study, we talk about, you know, international interventions that have gone well, relatively speaking. They've been able to sustain peace with maybe some hiccups along the way. And I, I really have a hard time thinking of a better example in recent memory than K4 Kosovo. Um, the fact that an international framework and an international sort of monitoring force essentially has uh, prevented another full-scale Yugoslav war since the, the implementation and deployment of K4 is a really good example of how intervention can work if done correctly and with the right framework. Um, if war is sort of placed in this category of that nobody wins, it not even on the domestic political side, as has been done with sort of Kosovo, um, peace can sort of be sustained for the long term. Um, and so... And, and not just that, but you can also develop frameworks for the underlying experience of the civilian population to be significantly better. Like, yeah. the, the quality of life in the former Yugoslavia has gone up significantly. Um, you know, a lot of the countries are either now EU members or on a pathway to EU membership. Um, and, you know, the, the, just the, the general quality of life for these people is great. I remember seeing a, a poll someone had posted um, a few days ago of like 30% of Americans think the NATO involvement, you know, in, in the former Yugoslavia was, was a bad thing. And like, just like, I really wish you could just show those people, you know, the mass graves of, of Bosniaks and, and other, other civilians who were massacred. Um, you know, and that, that would have been, so much worse um and I, I i really do think that a lot of people sort of you know just don't have that direct understanding i guess I, it's 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 just it's it's hard to have these debates sometimes just because of how bad the underlying events were at, at risk of pissing off every other balkan state member i think looking at uh croatia as an example of international frameworks working uh, productively is an excellent sort of case study because Croatia 25 years ago was a war zone. Croatia today is a NATO member state, an EU member state, a global travel destination. Hmm. Like the amount of money they make from tourism, the fact that they, you know, they filmed parts of Game of Thrones in Croatia. Um, and also a, a contender for the World Cup like eight years ago, uh, second place. Um, I, that alone, talk about a, a rise from the darkness mm. that was the Yugoslav Wars. Uh, I, I don't think, often enough, number one, I agree with what Technical was saying. In the States, I don't believe we um, talk about the Yugoslav Wars enough, uh, if at all, in our schools. It's kind of, you know, it's a footnote at the end of the history textbook. You know, Bill Clinton goes into Yugoslavia, right? A lot more attention is paid... Um, to U.S. intervention with UNITAF in Somalia. But I think there should be more of a focus on how international frameworks have worked so well in the Balkans. I mean, obviously, Bosnia still has its own domestic political issues. But, I, I mean, you know, quality of life in Bosnia today, 
despite its domestic political issues and internal conflict between the three presidents, um, is a hundred, a million times better than when, you know, Sarajevo was under siege for three. The situation in, in Belgrade is, is 10 times better than when, you know, they're trying to uh, engage in conflict with either Kosovo or the rest of former Yugoslavia and, you know, enduring a NATO bombing camp. The situation in Montenegro has gone from uh, the state not existing to the state being a NATO member. And I believe it's either already a U an EU member state or it's in the pipeline for that. Um, yeah, I think we need to talk about the Balkans more as how frameworks can work if there's enough time, effort, and resources dedicated towards it. Hmm. But 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 I think the the, the but the, the the issue is though. So like I, for example, Serbia is the perfect example. Like that, it's it like if you look at Serbia polls from the domestic audience, they think like Russia or China, like the largest people that invest into Serbia, if you ask Serbs, but it's really the EU. So I think the EU has a problem, a messaging problem. It's like, hey, Serbia, sure. the reason why you're like that is because of us. But I think the Yugoslav example, though, I think the, the what that highlights, though, and, and the success is, let's be real. When we're talking about international framework, what, what we're really saying that were successful, that had extensive involvement, both political, diplomatic, and economic, and at the end of the day, boots on the ground. From the West. But it wasn't just a military intervention in and of itself. There was political capital invested in this. There was economic investment into this. Far greater than what we've seen in any Western intervention in, in, in the Middle East. That, let's be frank, resoundly failed. I mean, people look at Afghanistan, mm. right? It is what was attempted in, let's say, Iraq or Afghanistan is not comparable to what happened in the Balkans and the way that it was done in construction and then enforced to ensure that this was done. Because then if you look at, let's say, Africa as a perfect example, I mean, the coup in Mali, basically now the, the UN peacekeeping force in Mali is basically going to be is done. Right. Look at the Congo. Look at the Democratic Republic of Congo. M23 is at it again. And how many years have we talked about M23? And so when we're talking about international frameworks, I think there's a fundamental difference, though, when we're, when we're saying is that is it is the UN, per se. What we're really trying to say, though, is it is nation states, and specifically the West, that puts a lot of capital into a situation to solve it, however complex it is. Now, granted, the Balkans have something that is highly beneficial to them compared to our interventions in the Middle East. In Africa, as the Balkans are in Europe, they have the EU that can that you can integrate their economies into the EU that incentivizes economic development. That does not exist in Afghanistan. That does not exist in Iraq. That does not exist in Africa. We, we're, we're, with the problem that these countries are facing with the instability that they have is that the organizations, the regional bodies and the organizations that exist here do not have the power and the weight that the EU did ha had to incentivize the Balkans to go for stability and for economic development. We are I not know, seeing... Yeah. Absolutely. And, and you're completely right on that. And, and at the end of the day, all the EU is is just an international framework with proper backing. Um, it is... I, I think we should have gone further in saying that, yes, you have to put the frameworks together, but then you actually have to back them up and you actually have to put the investment in. 
um, whether that be the manpower, material, capital. Um, and I, I think in some places, even in Africa, it's worked. I mean, look at Rwanda today. Um, it is, it is a, a, a rapidly or it, it is a very quickly improving country. Um, it, it, it has seen, you know, fairly rapid advancement and, and sort of a standardization and increasing the quality of life for the average citizen. Um, you know, there, there are, there are wins there, um, but there are also, also losses where, where there hasn't been that international investment like Congo. Um, and I, I, I really do think you, you do nail down to the, to the bottom of the issue there. I mean, it's funny that Rwanda is probably, let's be frank, I mean, Rwanda is the reason why the M23 is still roaming around and causing havoc in North and South Kivu. I mean, the M23 is an extension of the Rwandan state. Let's be real. Right. So the Rwanda's success, ironically, has caused increased instability in the Congo and, and, and how that and, and, and but the, the amount of pressure that is given to the Congo to, to Rwanda is not enough to change that. But but regardless, you know, kind of reeling this back into Gaza and Israel for a second, I think there is a way that this can happen in in, in to to provide stability and economic development in Gaza and Palestine within a framework of a two state solution. But the only way that can happen is by the GCC. Fortunately, we have the Abrams Accords. That is a vehicle for Israel for certain, with certain Arab countries to have diplomatic and economic relations that enables trade, etc. You have to have Saudi Arabia included into this. Saudi Arabia has been very clear. There needs to be solid advancement within the Palestinian state of the establishment of a Palestinian state for Saudi Arabia to have normalization with Israel. And I think this is an opportunity to, to achieve that. And I think, I think the greatest problem is the war has happened. You know, over 20,000 Palestinians have killed per the uh, Hamas-run Gaza Ministry of Health. Uh, thousand, over almost 1,500 Israelis have died, both civilians and military. What would be a travesty is if the opportunity to seize a diplomatic solution is wasted because of this. Like Sometimes in the worst of a war is really the only time that you can really establish peace, a long-during peace between states um like Azerbaijan's victory over Armenia in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict probably is the one in very few time that there might actually be a peace treaty between Armenia and Azerbaijan unfortunately so it, it is behooves the international community to ensure that that is done but I can see the GCC saying very clearly like I, I I don't think we yeah. should take the the situation in Arsras as as a um as a positive even even with a, a, a you know a tentative ceasefire in effect um I, i'm not saying it's positive no 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 but 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 what, what i'm trying to highlight is that a lot of times after the most violent wars that occur there is a small window of opportunity to have a long stable peace or at least a ceasefire at least but i mean look at the balkans as a perfect example i mean we literally talked about I mean, the only way that the Balkans actually had peace was after a devastating war because there was an international impetus to make sure this is not going to happen again. Mm. There was a window of opportunity because of the war, because of the death, because of the genocide, to say we cannot let this happen again. And that's what I'm kind of trying to say with Israel and Gaza. And I think it brings us back again to Israel's sort of plans for the end game, if you like. They haven't really worked that out yet. 
they they they're adamant that they want to wipe out Hamas, but they cannot adequately describe to anyone, including themselves, how they intend to do that. Especially as you say, when we bear in mind, you know, the US and the coalition spent twenty years in Afghanistan, and the Taliban still exists. I mean, and the Taliban dealt with the, we dealt with the Taliban. We had offices in Doha. We, I mean, even we don't have official diplomatic relations. Even they yeah, and I think yeah. from the Israeli perspective, they, they've obviously offered these solutions before. The, the UN has at various points in history tried to broker the two-state solution and tried to broker other border arrangements between Israel and, and the Palestinian groups. And inevitably, all, all of these options have been rejected in one form or another. The two-state solution was famously rejected by the Palestinians on, on more than one occasion. And so ultimately, what what we're faced with is a stalemate, because neither side realistically wants the two-state solution, but the rest of the world is adamant that that is the best way forward. Yeah, I think this hark backs on a prior point, and I think the entire discussion about the Balkans um, and the necessity for international frameworks can kind of be drummed down to the need for what I would term to be follow-up. Um, in the case, if you look at, you know, back in the 80s, if you look at the U.S. arming of the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, you know, a lot of promises were made to Afghan leaders that after, you know, the Soviets had been beaten, there would be economic aid, there would be sort of initiatives, there would be follow-up on the development of infrastructure, development of schools. And, and the fact that that follow-up never really came was a major reason why more radical elements in the Taliban were able to sort of take over what was formerly sort of the, the Mujahideen there and um, dictate authority in Afghanistan until the 2001 invasion, right? And mm-hmm. so when we take that and we apply that to the situation in Gaza, I think there needs to be continued attention on behalf of the international community, right? Even when the counterinsurgency operations in uh, Gaza itself are done, there needs to be international effort to rebuild infrastructure there there needs to be a um and i use this term not in the economic sense but also somewhat there needs to be a profitable future laid out for palestinians there needs to be an option that is more valuable has more focus on you know the value of of life and prosperity than you know joining hamas and lobbing rockets at israel um and until that happens, until we sort of see a political solution um, gain traction, we're going to be stuck in this vicious cycle of, you know, Israel uh, continues to pursue policies like West Bank settlements that piss off um, Palestinians. They continue to pursue policies, um, I guess, I mean, you know, in the current, right, you know, the occupation of Gaza is wildly unpopular, obviously, with the Palestinian people. Um, but there needs to be give and take on both sides. If if a two-state solution is ever going to be realized, there needs to be leadership in power on either side willing to do so. Hmm. Um, and there needs to be resources, monitoring, and enforcement sort of conducted by the international community. Um, and in any of these conflicts, often what happens is once the conflict is done, the world kind of looks away. You know, war's over. Who cares? And then, you know, when it comes back 10 years later, everyone kind of hoos and haws and says, how could this happen? Um, So we need to not, the international community needs to not allow, you know, this war to end when the war ends. 
right? There needs to be a continued focus. There needs to be continued efforts on not just building a new piece, but preserving that piece. Um, and often when intention kind of goes the other way, so too resources follow. But I think this, you know, we've been talking a while on Israel Hamas. I think mm. we've been talking about it for the last hour. So I, I would like to segue the conversation one of two ways. We can either talk about a conflict that has not gotten a lot of attention worldwide, which is the Myanmar Civil War, or we could sort of segue into, you know, what the situation is between Russia and Ukraine as it stands. I chose a perfect time to come back from my lunch break. Welcome back. <laughs> I love how we've been doing this long enough to then have lunch break. Uh... <laughs> I mean, Mars kind of is technical coming back. I, I don't know what's happened to technical. I think he's lost connection because he's actually dropped off entirely. Um, he's received an invitation to join the Colombian government as a guaranteed member of parliament. <laughs> oh my God, he's indigenous. <laughs> no, um, the things we, the well, things he'll do not to edit a podcast episode. We we talked we talked a little bit about sort of the institutionalization of former terror groups into like a peaceful government structure. And the uh, examples of Sinn Féin in Ireland and FARC in Colombia were kind of brought up. And actually one yeah. final point on both of those is that in both of those cases, the majority of these groups and their resources joined the civilian government. You know, in the case of Sinn Féin, they were guaranteed seats. And now they often win elections in Ireland. Um, in the case of the FARC, you see a little bit less sort of election success, but you also still have like guaranteed buy-in into the future of the country. But in both of these cases, we actually saw a fragmentation of the groups. Um, Sinn Féin fractured into, you know, well, the IRA fractured into what is Sinn, now Sinn Féin and what I believe now is called the provisional IRA or like the new yeah. IRA, um, which is a smaller group that still, you know, has the stated objectives of the the original ira but you know it's a bit more radical i mean obviously they haven't had a huge impact because they're a lot smaller but in the case of colombia we still do see um a sizable contingent of the former farc known as, known as the eln um and they still definitely operate out in you know the jungles of east um colombia now recently there's been efforts to negotiate with them and there have been some signals saying that they may end their sort of kidnap for ransom uh I guess operations is the best way to describe it. Um, but it's important to note that even if we see sort of a similar um, ideal situation happen in with Hamas, where there's you know guaranteed buy-in into Palestinian governments that governance that doesn't involve continued you know terror attacks on Israel, uh, there will likely be a splintering of the organization, and even then we'll still have to deal with sort of radical wings that are trying to do same old, same old. Um, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yes, you're, you, again, you're never going to eliminate completely the threat, but, you know, how do you mitigate it? And I think, you yeah. know, the, the the provisional IRA compared to you know, what the IRA is, is, you know, it's a shadow of his former self. And, and with Colombia, though, you know, the, the, the ELN has always been a separate organization in and of itself. And, and But you do have other far distant groups like Seca Macaria and, and kind of like in, in, uh, in Venezuela, I've talked about like the 10th front, et cetera, there's all these disparate groups that can operate. ELN has never been part of like an official peace treaty with the Colombian government. There has yeah. been attempt with Gustavo Petro to do that. This has been very unsuccessful. But I think the problem that you run into when you when you look at Colombia specifically, I mean, what, what, what is the main driver of instability is the drug trade that that, you know, OK, I can get money from the government or I can make a lot more money 
doing the drug trade mm-hmm. and then kind of have my own little fiefdoms to run it. And oh, by the way, I have a Venezuelan government that is a shadow of its former self that does not have the monopoly of violence, is unable to maintain security of its own country. And the Venezuelan government is willing to empower these far distance and, and specifically, specifically the ELN uh, uh, to maintain power of the Maduro regime. So what's the incentive to, to go for peace, right? So, you know, you kind of analyze that, though, if you look at kind of the Palestinian territories, uh, uh, the West Bank and Gaza, I, I, I do believe that it, it's harder, right? Again, you're never going to eliminate the threat. But if, if you have buy-in, not only through the international community, but specifically the Arab League, right, and it kind of a framework with the Arab Accords, the Abrams Accords, you know, you can kind of see ways where governments and, country, and, and these groups might be like, you know what, let's be part of a political process to, to, to get involved. You're not going to eliminate the threat. And again, I'm not guaranteeing that what I'm advocating is going to happen or even be successful. I could be completely way off, of course. But I, I think history has shown that we, we didn't want to talk to the Taliban for decades. And eventually we had to because we acknowledged like we're not going to commit more American power, econo- you know, economic resources to Afghanistan to eliminate the Taliban. We're not going to do a repeat of Germany, Japan, post-World War II, because that's the only real way, right? Like a post-World War II full-on occupation and then like a Marshall Plan. There, there's no appetite to do that. Mm. So so in, 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 when, we, when I'm talking about Afghanistan and Iraq specifically, but for Gaza and Palestine, I mean, you do have a lot of GCC countries that are like, would be interested in doing it if there's guarantees for a Palestinian state, because I think the GCC also want to make sure like, hey, Israel, I'm not going to spend billions and billions of dollars for you to invade again. And the Israelis are going to say, well, I need guaranteed security. And that's the framework, at least some negotiation to see if they can get you somewhere. I guess on the topic of uh, if we're going to be talking about smaller organizations, then I think a better segue here instead of Russia, Ukraine would probably be Myanmar. Hmm. Uh, a conflict that doesn't really make mainstream news, but if you're keeping up to touch with it, uh, it's definitely shifting a lot recently um, it, against the junta. It is shifting a lot, and so I think I think it would behoove all of us to do a brief little overview on what the conflict is, because as um, as John pointed out, it's not often covered in the news unless you're you're reading from uh regional sources um like singaporean news or um, korean news even chinese news i guess indian news i mean they all cover it here and there um but generally speaking here in the west we get nothing about it unless it's like a major development or in some cases if it becomes a meme i I i'm sure all of you remember that one video about three years ago of the uh, jazzercise instructor doing exercises as you know the junta's forces rolled in in the background yeah so yeah myanmar has been in a state of civil war since 2021 um may of 2021 to be exactly in its current state right um around casualty estimates are probably low here uh but essentially just over 43,000 people have died over 2 million people have been um displaced this has come in the midst of the, you know, the Rohingya refugee crisis and the Rohingya uh, associated Rohingya genocide um, of 2022 and 2021. And as it stands right now, you know, the junta, which is backed by, uh, you know, the um, the state administration council is what it's called, 
which is yeah. backed by you know the organs of the traditional Myanmarian state, as well as a couple of other like associated armies, is currently showing down with the National Unity Government, which is backed by a word salad of various militias, insurgent groups, private armies, regional armies, ethnic armies. In some case, the keeping track of the Myanmarian Civil War map is a headache in and of itself. Once you actually you know, dedicate space to any of these individual groups, it becomes even more. Um, I think the colloquial term is border gore. Uh, but today, in the past couple of months, we've seen some significant signs of weakness on the part of the military junta, which traditionally has been relatively as stable i guess a force can be in a civil war considering the circumstances generally they've run the show they were a major reason why um formerly democratically elected leader Aung san Suu Kyi was placed under house arrest which i believe she still resides in to this day um and now what we've been seeing is that a lot of these local militias these local armies have been exerting more uh territorial control from the junta itself to the point where we're starting to get reports from the junta itself that things are not going well and uh, i would remind that this state information is controlled very closely generally the the press releases we would see from the state administration council were what you would expect from an autocracy to the point of you know everything is going fine operations are underway nobody panic and now we're getting stuff that's like uh, maybe slightly panic, which is a, a major change of tack um, in the information being put out by the junta. So I don't know how much you guys, the rest of y'all have been following this. Um, any thoughts, comments, concerns? Uh, I actually started following it in like the past few weeks, like seriously following it mm -hmm. because uh, it seemed really daunting to get into beforehand. Um, I think... Uh, the sack is a little more concentrated, but then once you get to the national unity government, you have like what thirteen to twenty uh, seriously armed groups involved. Yeah, they're seriously armed for one. Um, I think also as much as the OSINT space on um, Twitter and social media in general focuses on like weapons development, there's a ton of interesting sort of aspects to how these groups are either procuring 3d printing or manufacturing on spare parts their own sort of armaments here but it is confusing because a lot of groups share names based upon location so as as an example in the in the karen national union there is the karen national liberation army the karen national defense organization the kareni army and then the kareni national people's liberation front so in regards to, that's just one region, right? And then there's also the Kareni Nationalities Defense Force. Um, word salad is a bit of an understatement because when some of these newer groups pop up, they just tack on everything that the group before them had and then add another word. Um, luckily, they have different flags and different symbols, so that's a bit easier to visually identify them by like their uniforms or you know what they're carrying. Uh, but in regards to assessing and determining what they actually control, good luck. Unless you talk to them directly, and they'll probably, you know, overstate what they control. Um, but 
it, it's it's an amount of factions that makes the Syrian civil war look palatable by comparison in regards to tracking, not in regards to you know what's going on on the ground, obviously. Um, but I think the fact that so many beyond dedicated state analysts, so many people who are interested in it are having to play a massive game of catch up due to you know the amount of factions involved, the amount of recent developments, and the limited nature on sourcing information. You know, we just talked about a couple of conflicts where we're getting basically daily videos from people on the like Israel Palestine is an example. We're getting daily press releases from the IDF. We're getting daily videos from soldiers on the ground there. And on the Hamas side, we're getting pretty much the same thing. Um, we're getting daily casualty figures. We're getting daily videos from either civilians or Hamas operatives. Um, like, compare that to Myanmar, where we get like a video maybe once a week. And we get a news story maybe once a month. And the gross contrast in the amount of information being put out there is insane to look at. So I, I think this, though, the, the, the lack of information, I think, is more related to the language barrier. Because if you go, because Myanmar, for example, are obsessed with Facebook. Mm. And, 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 and there is more content there. It just takes time for that to kind of translate into the local language and then kind of get into Western media. Trust me, I, I, I run into this with cartels. I mean, even, even just with Mexican media in and of itself, that they don't cover everything that's going on uh, uh, with all the video content. And so you just have to know where to look. But, but I think the Myanmar situation, and again, Myanmar, since its inception as an independent nation state, has basically had, had ethnic conflicts, and, and which incentivized the military to seize power shortly after its independence, right? And so we've always had this issue of kind of like the Myanmar military being the predominant political player in Myanmar politics even when Aung Suu Kyi was kind of uh, elected as president. But what is very interesting about this specific moment, right, this specific part of the, of, the, of the Myanmar civil war in its entire history, is that this is really the first time where the Myanmar military is in trouble. That, that there's actual conversations where, there, well, not even actual conversation, we've seen mass surrenders way more recurring than usually when you track Myanmar. And, and if you compare that to two years ago when the coup happened and then kind of this, these pro-democracy movements started to transition to an armed resistance, and, and, and it was kind of viewed as kind of like, oh, they're a nuisance to the Myanmar government, to the Myanmar junta. They're not a real threat to, to the regime. To now, it's not out of the realm of possibilities. Like, well, wait a minute. Can they get to the capital? Because what we're seeing, and, and you know, that's the thing about Myanmar, right? The further away you are from the center, the more ethnically diverse they are, and kind of the, the reach of the Myanmar junta is less and less. But but even even in those remote areas, the Myanmar government had the ability to deploy forces to clamp down and say, okay, you know, this specific rebel group is a threat. We need to step down. The Rohingya is the perfect example, right? The Rohingya genocide, and, and how the Myanmar government, even though it was kind of in the periphery of the Myanmar state dedicated significant resources to the point of committing genocide, right? So that there was no problem of Myanmar committing itself to, to massive violence. But now they, they don't look like in many incidents in many regions as being the most powerful military power within certain states of Myanmar. And I think that's an interesting development. How did that happen within the last two years? And, and, and this specific offensive started in October, 
that we're seeing the three brother alliance kind of that umbrella group with other organizations as you mentioned austin kind of really being the, the main push to it and how other groups followed suit and how that caught the junta unprepared or or maybe not even unprepared but that they were a lot weaker than they assumed and i think it would be a very interesting case study about you know what we don't know how this is going to end right maybe the myanmar government is is capable of turning things around but regardless, this time frame, from at least October to December of 2023, what enabled such a fundamental shift in the battle space of Myanmar civil war that now enabled to look like the Three Brother Alliance and all these other disparate groups operating have the upper hand? It's almost like, that, like these ethnic groups and these armed oppositions are the ones that are going to set the tone. If negotiations happen now, let's just make pretend that boom, negotiations now, it would be these armed groups that would dominate the, the negotiations because they have proven to be on top. And that's a very interesting aspect of this development in Myanmar. And I'm truly interested in how they accomplished it. Was it because there was a lot more cross-based uh, cooperation between all these disparate ethnic groups that then were able to marshal all the resources and attack in multiple areas that just simply overwhelmed the Myanmar military. It was that kind of what it is. To be honest, I don't know, but to me, that's the most fascinating aspect that in two years, we've really seen a huge change. And, and when we're talking about two years, it's really been within the last two months specifically. I think that's a very level and fair analysis and i think the the angles to look at moving forward is do we continue to see sort of this backslide from the junta itself in regards to admitting you know losses in the field admitting loss of control in some of these regions and then the follow-up to that being do some of these regional armies sort of capitalize on that do they expand from what they're currently doing um i don't have much more to add on myanmar if somebody else does, we can continue. If not, we can move on to our, our next topic, which I think we can either go between... Uh, actually, a quick side note on Venezuela, Guiana. Yeah, the war's not going to happen. Anyways, moving on. Um, <laughs> uh, we can move on to Russia, Ukraine. We could move on to... If we really want to go for it, we can, the upcoming U.S. election cycle. Um, I, I, I want to save that for uh, our 2024 predictions. That's entirely fair. That's entirely fair. Um, we could talk about Argentina and the fact that I, I think we got to talk about. I think we got to talk about Russia Ukraine. There's no way we could do this without talking about Russia Ukraine. Understood. So Argentina, quick note: bankrupt. Moving on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But it'll be interesting to see uh, what Malay does, considering you know the past couple of decades of Argentine economic underperformance um russia ukraine let's get into that then so where we're at to sort of set the stage is the united states and the european union both have been in political squabbles with themselves over continued either civil or military funding and aid to ukraine um, on the european union side we've seen hungary sort of exercise its it's not quite a veto power, but it functions that way. So I'm going to refer to it as such in halting, I believe it was 50 billion euros um, scheduled to go to Ukraine. In the United States, we've seen internal partisan squabbling between the Republicans and the Democrats and, you know, isolationist elements within the GOP 
sort of sink Ukraine aid for now, unless it's tacked on to um, funding for border security. So I guess the question then becomes, well, and what this leads to is this leads to delays um, to Ukrainian armed forces that is once again, generally on the defensive um, and could use, you know, further aid sooner rather than later. So I'm curious as to all of y'all's opinion on when will the next round of U Ukraine aid come, if it does, how will that impact the battle space? And what do we have to look forward to come 2024? And more importantly, how many more cold boys or barbecue boys are we going to get? <laughs> that would require... There, here, there's Spook. All right, what do you think, Spook? And, and to be completely honest, I, I think aid is not going to end, but I think it's going to be um, a lot less... Uh, a lot less uh, generous, so to speak. Uh, especially with the election cycle coming up and it being such a polarizing topic, especially um, now that focus has kind of been dwindling to other conflicts around the world. Um, that's kind of my, my take on it. Um, if Biden is reelected, I think aid will continue to shoot back up. If one of the um, conservative, um, one of the conservative candidates gets elected, I think we'll obviously see that dwindle down. I think it depends on the if candidate. If not become... Yeah, I mean, you're right. It depends on the candidate, obviously. But I, I think that party toes a line of... is has been towing a line of we need to focus back on the U.S. in terms of spending. Um, I think it would be a tough sell. I mean, we, we, we saw the government almost get shut down over it. Um, I, think, I think we pretty much know, at least where the Freedom Caucus stands on it, uh, and everybody that surrounds the Freedom Caucus, I, I think Democrats still want to support Ukraine. Mm. Um, I think it needs to be sold more to the populace. Um, but hopefully it does happen because we need more cold boys. Yeah. Uh, see, I, I think most people know that I'm a big, big fan of Nikki Haley. <laughs> like, God damn <laughs> But no, uh, all oh, jokes. Oh, we know. Uh, all jokes aside, yeah, no. Uh, I think if Biden wins the election, then yeah, we'll we'll see aid ramp up again. Uh, if he loses, then it's yeah, it's it's definitely up in the air. And if a certain man who's orange wins the elections, then uh, yeah, you can kiss it goodbye. <laughs> so, so I, I, I guess goodbye. I, I th so th there's going to be. Uh, an agreement. I mean, I think you know the border and and, and Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, like the, the supplement control package that that Biden and, and the Democrats and Republicans are currently negotiating in Congress. It, it, some version of it is going to pass. That um, there does look like to be a lot of, you know, there's still a lot of work to do, but uh, everything is positive in the right direction. That a compromise is is is, is likely looks like it's going to happen. It with you know kind of that border changes and funding etc and then the process for asylum and then it subsequently aid for ukraine but i think one of the interesting aspects that we're kind of seeing now is i think ukraine acknowledges like we need to ramp up our own military production right we need to bring that back and you're starting to see ukraine do that with the acknowledgement of saying you know we cannot be dependent solely on you know the west giving us military equipment to kind of continue this war effort um and so 
I think that's an interesting aspect that I think because of these political squabbles and everything that's going on, I think Ukraine has kind of stopped and said, wait a minute, let's let's try to at least as much as we can try to build some self-sufficiency so we, we continue this fight. But what, what, what I think is extremely where I think we're, we're missing an important aspect of the Russia-Ukraine war when we're talking about what's going on, because we use the term stalemate a lot. And, and I think stalemate miss, it causes people to kind of not understand what's they, they get the wrong image in their head of what that means, because stalemate kind of means like the lines are static and they just think, OK, nothing is going on. And no, like it, there's intense combat happening daily across the entire front in, in many areas along uh, along the front line. It's just one side or the other just not having the ability to kind of penetrate and move on. But but. What's interesting of this is that the further this war drags on, the, 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 the more it becomes obvious that the way Russia is fighting this war right now is geared a lot towards the propaganda aspects for the West, because Russia does want the West to stop providing military equipment, because they, 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 they would have an upper hand in that situation. I don't think it's as doom as gloom, and I'll get to that later, that if, you know, let's say, the West ceases all military support, that Ukraine collapses, and that's what the Russian hopes and a lot of people say. It's not, I don't, I don't think it's that point. But obviously, Russia would get an upper hand. But how Russia is fighting right now is they, they, they're fighting to either, one, prevent the front lines from changing, or to at least gain territory. So that way they can show them on a map, they can say, hey, see, look, this is what Russia, this is where we're at. See, nothing has changed in the last three months. See, nothing has changed. We're good to go. Ukraine is losing because we're holding the line or we're gaining territory. To undermine the Western narrative of support to Ukraine. And a lot of the, and that drives Russia's military decisions. So, right, the strategic objective is to hold terrain and to gain territory for propaganda value to undermine the Western unity to Ukraine. So that's the strategic. And if you go down to the operational tactical, that explains a lot of these just mass madmen drive offensive that the Russians are launching. That is causing astronomic amount of casualties that in the West would be intolerable no, like nobody in the west would ever ex uh, uh, allow this to happen because the the way that the russians are fighting it's not like hey they're they're sound tacticians and they're and they're fighting effectively as an effective fighting force but just it's just casualties right there's, there's just astronomical because of just the nature of the warfare the, the, the russians are suffering astronomical amount of casualties because they're not an effective military force to begin with and so they go to the most basic military tactics to achieve their strategic objectives. And one of their, they're not even considering casualties as a constraint of how they execute military operations. And so, which for the Russians, I mean, it's pretty clear, they don't care. As long as they can hold the line or gain some territory, they don't care about casualties. Where the question that I have that I just been in my mind just consistently and constantly discuss, thinking about about this when we're talking about Russia's military tactics and the lack of care they have for their own military soldiers is that does this get to a breaking point for Russian military personnel? Right? Does, does this tip over into the fact that now Russia's military, you know, 
basically not break down as in the Ukrainians are now pushed through across the fortifications and are now marching towards Crimea, but more just a breakdown of the command and control and military forces, even upright mutiny against Russian, you know, general leadership in the Russian Ministry, Russian Ministry of Defense. And I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility. Because one of the key aspects of 2023 was the Wagner mutiny. Rebellion, coup, whatever you want to talk about. Like, how, whatever term you want to reference that event with Wagner, that was a defining feature of 2023. And Putin, let's be frank, got lucky that Prigozhin ceased his offensive to Moscow because Prigozhin had basically unopposed until he got Moscow where he was going to rush, run, run into the Russian uh, uh, National Guard. But Prigozhin's insurrection, mutiny, whatever, part of even Prigozhin's tactics in Bakhmut that now the Russian Ministry of Defense is following suit now. And obviously there was more going on in the background, not just the casualties, et cetera, and how Wagner was being undermined by the Russian Ministry of Defense and the Russian you know, presidential administration because of the power Wagner was, was, was gaining. But that mutiny showed that a breakdown in command and control is possible within the Russian at least the forces operating in Ukraine. And that's something I am extremely interested in looking at the situation right now in Russia, because I think the Russians overestimate their hold of how Russians, how much suffering the Russian soldier can, can take as a whole. I really think that the Russian Ministry of Defense is making a huge assumption saying, no matter how many casualties we have, we can just continue sending soldiers to the front. Because this isn't, though, the, the, what they're trying to pin this to is World War II, you know, the Great Fatherland War, and that's the propaganda they're pushing. But, like, Ukraine didn't invade Russia. Ukraine is not going to go to St. Petersburg, to, to, to Moscow, right? They're, they're not going to invade into Russia proper. That war is fundamentally different. With this with Ukraine war, and we always talk about how the warfare right now correlates with World War One, right? The trench warfare, the static lines, the, the inability to kind of penetrate each other's lines. But what happened in the Eastern Front in Russia, right? What caused the revolution and then the, the rise of the Soviet Union? It, it was the how the Russian soldiers just were fed up with the execution of World War I, which the interesting aspect of it was that the Eastern Front was not as heavily involved in trench warfare compared to the Western Front. And my last point is, to kind of something I said earlier about like this ability of Russia, let's say the West ceases uh, uh, sending military aid to, to Ukraine. I mean, clearly the Ukrainians are going to have to make decisions. And again, I don't think that's likely. The West will continue to provide, at least for 2024, still provide military equipment. And, and, and the Ukrainians looks like they're going to do a lot more domestic production. But one of the interesting aspects is that if, let's say, all ceases, the problem that Russia has is, in purely military terms, the reason why this war is trench warfare right now and very static is because the Russian military have never really demonstrated a capability to execute complex combined armed maneuvers to be able to prevent that. There is a reason why after World War One and World War Two, Nazi Germany kind of designed the blitzstreaks and their ability to break sure that trench warfare 
was not how World War II was going to fight. They mastered kind of this combined armed tactics, the, the tactical, operational, strategic level warfare to achieve to objectives decisively and rapidly. The Russians haven't really ever demonstrated that outside of the initial invasion. And even their initial invasion was the worst we've probably seen in Russian military tactics. And that's when they were a purely professional force. And so what, you know, the Ukrainians, if all aid ceases, they're going to have to make trade-offs. They're going to have to start pulling back. But this idea that the Russians can have huge advances when they didn't in the beginning, and let's look again at the initial invasion when Ukraine really had no, not, not that much aid from the West compared to now, and how the Ukrainians were able to blunt them, I think that's a huge problem that the Russians are going to have and that they acknowledge. And, and I don't see them, even if the West seizes military assistance, seizing Zaporizhia, seizing Dnipro reaching the Dnieper River, going back into Kherson, doing a river crossing again. We just haven't seen them being that tactically competent to achieve those objectives. And, and, and you know, yes, there would be advances, but, you know, even the Chechens demonstrated that they were able to extract enormous amount of loss to Russian military forces, and the Chechens didn't have support whatsoever internationally. Yeah. I think it's... I think the the point of the point of the stability of the Russian army politically is is interesting because it's it's just not really talked about since the whole Prigozhin thing. I guess people are under the impression that the Prigozhin thing was a one and done sort of deal, but um, not really. Um, the Russian army has the potential to fall apart from within, which really isn't talked about all that much, and I don't I, I don't think. Putin can handle his current casualty rate for another full year. I, I just don't think so. Like, and, and if you look at the Eastern Front, like it wasn't as if there was this rapid collapse and the Russians in World War One were at the gates of Moscow, right? That, that's not necessarily kind of like the translation of World War One. It's just the Russian military just said, we're done with you, the Tsar of Russia, and, and, and somebody else needs to come along. Right. You can have both situations occur concurrently where the Russian military, you know, in some way, shape or form might still hold their the line or, or kind of fall back or, or, or retrograde in some areas. But but a message is sent clearly that, OK, Putin, you're kind of done. And I think that, again, I, I'm not predicting this is going to happen. I don't want people to misconstrue my statement. It's just something I'm looking at, because the, the longer this war drags out, the, the less professional, the less competent, the less effective the russian military becomes the the the, the just the equipment alone is, is ridiculous the amount of russian military equipment destroyed because of the war in ukraine and, and that has real world implications for russia's national security outside of ukraine and then it, it impacts individual morale and that can have a cascading effect and sometimes one single event like i think like if i may an example is like the Arab Spring, right? A fruit vendor set himself on fire. That's it. And look at everything that happens since then. Yeah. It's, it's almost like that's the problem when you're analyzing this. It's very hard to find those indications or what's the trigger event. But then when it happens and if it actually becomes something like that, it becomes a further cascading effect that can have real detriment of Russia's ability to execute its war in Ukraine. And by the way, the New York Times today reported on an article that, you know, Russia, you know, Vladimir Putin is pushing, you know, discreetly 
and you know the Russian government in of itself, at least the New York Times reports that he's interested in a ceasefire. So, I think he even acknowledges, with the election coming up in twenty twenty four, that more than likely he's going to win. But is that this is not sustainable even for himself? He wants to portray an image that I can do this forever, but I think he's looking internally and he's like, this is a problem for us, and we need to find a way to stop the bleed. I'm very interested to see the direction of the conflict going forward because I think it's going to be looking very different from what we're usually used to at this point. Or, or ending altogether, I, I I do think some sort of political settlement is the future. Um, neither side really has the push right now to uh, have that one big decisive uh, victory at this point. Um, something that doesn't really get talked about on Twitter is just the fact that even if we were to give everything Ukraine needs right now, I really doubt they'll be able to get that one big push super victory. Yeah, I think that's where the misconception is with the, the F-16s coming hopefully early next year, is people think those are like the wonder weapon. I mean, we hear the same thing almost every couple months about a new Western weapon being provided. It helps, don't get me wrong, but I think people need to understand that you know, 16 F-16s is not going to make Ukraine push all the way to Crimea. Mm. It's going to help on certain areas. It's going to help with what they actually need. Uh, but at the end of the day, like I said, I think people just need to attempt and understand the bigger picture of what Ukraine's asking, why they're needed, and how to expect things from moving forward will be. Yeah. And, and it, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for hogging the mic. It's just this. I, I can nerd out military doctrine for days. Like, I, uh, th that's the officer in me. That's all we do. We just get, like, locked in little rooms. It's like, oh, here's the order plan. And you're like, oh, my God. So I could go on for doctrine forever. But, it, it, you know, Global, it, and I, Austin, you've even said this in Global, you hit it, right? Like, the wonder weapon and all that. And that's not how the, the war of her launches. But I, I do really want to go back to, though, January of 2022, right? When, when, before Russia invaded Ukraine, can, can you, if anybody would have said two years later that showed a map of what the situation is on the ground, knowing what happened, I, I think all of that would have, we would have looked at that as like, oh my God, Ukraine has achieved the impossible. I mean, let's be frank. I, I would have, I did. I did not think Ukraine would have been in this situation. And I'm glad I was proven wrong. And I've said this time and time again in Twitter spaces. And I think we also need to acknowledge the success that Ukraine has achieved in the last two years of holding the Russian army back. I mean, what was it? Was it yesterday? Yesterday, three Sukhoi 34 shot down? Yeah, that was I mean, a that's, big victory. That, that's huge. That's a huge achievement that the Ukrainians pulled off. And their ability to hold that Vitka after everything that the Russians have thrown. I mean, how many Russian vehicles have been destroyed there? I mean, Global, you probably tracked this way more than me. Like 100, 200 vehicles have been destroyed? I mean, that's an enormous achievement by the Ukrainians. And I think we and I think the problem with Kharkiv, right, the Kharkiv offensive created this unrealistic expectation that everything the Ukrainians are going to do is going to achieve this. Even Kherson, where they forced the Russians out, kind of created this un, this 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 very hard expectation to achieve. And obviously that's what we want to aim for. Obviously that's what we, we all hope Ukraine achieves. But let's not ignore Ukrainians' massive success and, and holding 
significant portion of their country free from a Russian invasion. I think it's important that we highlight that success and also use that as a leverage to say this is why we need to continue to support Ukraine, not because only if we see they're going to lose, but also because we can show, look at the success they have accomplished in the last two years. I think uh, interesting places to look in the future is going to be how the uh, the European Union uh, negotiations go with the Ukrainians. Uh, I think having something like the EU fall behind Ukraine is also going to diffuse things a little bit. It might be a, a compromise between them outright joining NATO, which, I mean, I hate to say it, but it's not going to happen. Um... Yeah. <laughs> One thing I would like to add, though, I know for sure you always hear about the, how the West is being tired. I think the only nation that's allowed to be tired is Ukraine, since they're in the consistent conflict. Hmm. I would hope once 24 turns around, the U.S. does pass another aid or can use that aid functionality, and then the EU understands that concept as well. Because at the end of the day, I think one unfortunate good thing that happened between this conflict is it brought out the truth of a larger war. If a larger war broke out that didn't involve Ukraine or Russia, munitions would have been a big one. Logistical ones would be a big one. All that stuff would have been the key player in a future conflict, especially like how there's always conversations that China and the U.S. will somehow get in some sort of conflict in the future, reaching all the Pacific in some capacity. If that went to about, like, will the U.S. start getting tired? Who's going to support the U.S. in that capacity type situation? So I think... The war has brought a bigger picture of future conflicts and how they're going to last and public relations to those. So hopefully down the line, either Ukraine is able to muster the capacity to take back their land, a political settlement, or either, as you all have spoken here, a whole bunch of backlash in terms of the Russian military and political sphere where Putin gets ousted in some capacity, or that Russian forces decide to turn on their own because, as we know, there is certain hotspots in the southern aspects of Ukraine that Russian forces and armor are being annihilated every day in large capacities and they're being told to go in this direction and don't come back so i definitely see hopefully in 24 we see some more developments that are positive for ukraine um, but I know it's kind of unfortunately we're at the point where it's a wait and see approach pretty much yeah and on that bombshell i think it is probably time to bring this episode to an end uh, guys, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Um, I think we probably could have gone on for a number more hours, but um, I think in the interests of uh, Technical's ability to edit this uh, episode and uh, probably our own sanity as well, we'll, 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 we'll call it a day there. All right, guys, our next topic is the South. I, I, absolutely <laughs> love I was, I was hoping about these first. predictions, man. Oh, yeah. man. Can we just end with predictions? New Year predictions. Yeah, as I say, we could do like a one minute yeah, quick, predictions. Yeah, quick prediction for New Year. Start from the top. So, all source, you go. What's your prediction? Okay, so two things uh, I'm looking at. Uh, one, one thing I'm looking at, another one is a prediction. So, what I'm looking at is China's economy not doing so well. And I think we're going to see a continuation of the, you know, of China's economic um, growth and outlook. And um, there's a lot of things that are indicating that China's internal economic situation, not only from data, is bad. Specifically, Chinese migrants going into the U.S. is increasing significantly. So that's something I'm looking into. But my prediction for 2024, and I'm going to just kind of focus on what I talk about, specifically cartels, 
and maybe Austin is the only one who might understand what I'm talking about, but um, is that uh, the one of the factions of the Sinaloa cartel uh, run by uh, El Chapo's sons called Los Chapitos, the Mexican government and the U.S. government has gone heavily against the leadership. And I think 2024, we're going to see the key figure of uh, Los Chapitos, Ivan Archivaldo. I think he's going to be captured by the Mexican government. And that's going to cause a lot of problems for the Sinaloa cartel. And unfortunately, that generally translates to just greater levels of violence in Mexico. Yeah. All right. I'm also going to keep it in the Americas here. I don't think often enough we get predictions in the Americas. Like, um, I've got two. I think that Malay and Argentina is going to face tremendous difficulties in sort of implementing the uh, reforms that he's promised, sort of axing different government agencies. I think there's going to be severe domestic blowback to that um, from state employees themselves, as well as sort of being, um, infrastructure problems once these if these plans are actually carried out uh, secondarily um haiti where we're nearing i believe the deployment date of um an international peacekeeping force or policing force i believe is the term used uh led by kenya um i think the number they're, they're going for right now is ten thousand um sort of officers or military personnel going into haiti i think that's going to get gobbled up by haiti i don't think it's going to make any sort of measurable impact and i think be a lot of negative news of conflict between these um, quote-unquote peacekeepers and sort of Haitian gangs that the country's already been dealing with for a long time. So I think we're going to be looking at a Haiti that actually has more violence than in the previous year, and it'll be interesting to see how the international community sort of attempts to um, react to the potential failure coming deployment. I think in the new year we are going to see a, a definitive uptick in China's sort of behaviour around Taiwan. Over the last 12 months we've obviously seen a significant increase in the amount of air activity uh, and in their movements with regards to shipping around uh, the Taiwan Strait. But I, I think in the next 12 months we're going to really see that escalate further. And I don't believe we're going to see an awful lot of reaction uh, to that by the US and allies um, partly down to the conflict in Ukraine partly down to obviously the, the ongoing situation in the Red Sea and uh, and as Austin mentioned um, the inevitable situations in, in, in Central and South America that are likely to take up a great deal of, of, of US and, and Western attention So I'll keep it to everyone's favorite region of the Korean Peninsula, of course, got to touch on that. So my initial belief is either North Korea will do their seventh nuclear test or some sort of limited that could expand based on things go. We know North Korea's a teaser, so they might do some sort of limited kind of tactical provocation comparable to 2010, either some sort of limited artillery strike in certain area or some sort of provocation in the DMZ that invites a hardline South Korean response. So, a little tease, hard to tell. As we know, 2020 Christmas surprise was a failure as usual. So, that's kind of my my little prediction. Um, okay, uh, I will give a realistic prediction and an unrealistic prediction. 
I think the U.S. elections this year are a shit show that no one's ready for and are going to make 2020 look like a joke. Um, and I think someone other than North Korea is going to do a nuclear weapons test. If anyone has been reading into this, I actually think China's going to be the one to do a nuclear weapons test this year. Hmm. Uh, they've been setting up their facilities out in the uh, middle of nowhere. Uh, they've been investing a lot of money into their nuclear testing facilities, which I don't really see any other reason why they would, unless they expect to be doing a nuclear test in the next year or two. So which one was your realistic and which one was your unrealistic? Because they both sound realistic. <laughs> oh, my unrealistic one is the is the uh, China nuclear test. Like... Uh, I, I mean, it could happen, but I, I doubt it. Like, yeah, there's the signs are there. That's all. And then there was me, who didn't speak much because I was looking for the ornament, which to no prevail. <laughs> uh, I even had people come over and look for it. Uh, that said, though, uh, my my expectations for the coming year is I think Ukraine uh, slash Russia is going to continue to grind on. I don't think there's going to be much. Uh, for either side to to really um i don't think there's gonna be a lot of victory in, in terms of either side there uh, i do see as more information comes out on Vergosian's death that becoming more um more of a talking point within the power structure within russia uh, i could see another mutiny happening um in that sense i know you guys discussed that i just didn't have the opportunity to unfortunately because i have people over here helping me look um as for the Israeli-Hamas conflict, I think that's going to continue to bubble. I think, I, I, I would say, not an unrealistic expectation as that becomes a larger conflict uh, in the Middle East, especially with now we're seeing a Houthi intervention in the Straits and so forth. So um, that's kind of my predictions. It was an absolute pleasure being here. I appreciate you, Defense Geek, for having this, Austin. Um, yeah. I was in technical and spirit. Uh, it's been great, as always. Yeah, uh, same here. Thanks for having me on twice this year. <laughs> Feeling is mutual, gents. And I'm sure that the one thing I can predict is that we will have all of you on again at some point in the new year for either a, a full-length OSINT Bunker podcast episode or for a drop-in on one of our uh, snapshot episodes, which will be uh, starting hopefully in January. And so with that, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening. Um, this has been the OSINT Bunker podcast, um, and this is us signing off now for 2023.